Suwamish Valley from I-5 all the way over to West Seattle was filled with seawater as an arm of Puget Sound. And that stayed that way until only about a thousand years ago. And the reason that we have dry land there uh, is because of eruptions from Mount Rainier. And so these eruptions were happening between 5,000 years ago and about 1,000 years ago. So you can imagine 4,000 years of Mount Rainier erupting, the landscape changing 20 feet a year, moving, moving the place where the delta is located um, for 4,000 years. This is a period of really dramatic change and it filled in the entire valley. Um, and that's why we have a nice flat bottom of the valley today. Invisible History with Carrie and Elka. We're going to be exploring the Pacific Northwest lost stories with you. Testing, testing, we're back and one of us has a rather husky voice, so we'll see how it goes today. I know, like here we are. Here we are again at the beautiful Works Progress Studios. Yes. Okay. We're testing the levels. Do you want me to grab your tea? Hello, and welcome to Invisible History, exploring Seattle's lost stories with Carrie and Elka. <laughs> Hello. And today we have episode two, Lay of the Land, and we will be talking about just that in a moment, the evolution of the land. But first, I want to thank Elizabeth Davis from University of Washington for that audio clip you heard in the beginning. She just recently received her PhD in geology for studying nearshore records of natural hazards of the past millennium, including landslides and earthquakes and liquefaction records of the Duwamish Delta. So exactly the area we're talking about. We had her come and talk to people and the Haunted History Tour this past year as well. So excited to work with her more in the future as we literally dig into the land here so and I'll <laughs> stop with the puns after that but so today we do want to share from the perspective of a character that rarely gets to tell its story the land itself how the cemetery removal was an example of forced industrialization and this progress at all costs mentality we want to contextualize the land in the space of Georgetown and talk about the existing death and burial practices of the time and how there was an evolution of infrastructure as Seattle became what we like to think of as the modern city in the early 1900s. So we're really, we're diving into these ideas of defining progress that we talked about last time, while also engaging with the concept of how the world is constantly evolving. So for those of you who pursued higher education in the humanities, sorry about your uh, student loans, and <laughs> you're my people also. This postmodernist framework, Deleuze and Gautieri, that everything, including us, is always in a state of becoming. So something <laughs> to ponder while you're um, searching on your phone, scrolling on your phone or something <laughs> next time, pondering the world, right? <clears throat> And before we begin, I just wanted to take a few minutes to talk about the music for our podcast. So as we were planning the show, we were looking for some music from around 1912, as that was the last year the cemetery was open, and just thinking about what a funeral would have sounded like at that time. Uh, and so I searched on YouTube, which brought up a piece titled Coleridge Taylor Samuel 
Funeral March, Opus 79, number three from Othello, incidental music. The music was perfect. And we immediately found this very intriguing because at first I thought, is this Samuel Taylor Coleridge who wrote Rhyme with the Ancient Mariner and Kubla Khan? Was he somehow also a composer that I didn't know about? It just didn't make any sense. So finally, I turned to our old friend, Uncle Wikipedia, to learn (laughs) that there was actually a composer in England named Samuel Coleridge Taylor, born in 1875, whose father was a doctor from Sierra Leone. His mother was a Victorian lady um, and encouraged her son to explore music. And she actually named him after Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And he grew up to be famous in his time, but until recently, somewhat forgotten composer of mixed race. Um, And he traveled to America in the early 1900s um, and really found kindred spirits there in W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington and other musicians who identified with his music. And to this day, there's a Samuel Coleridge Taylor Choral Society in America. Um, So cool. And I love that we're like this idea of um, invisible histories, right? And in a way, he fits in perfectly with that. And this rediscovery of what he was doing in his music. And it sounds like he had a really interesting, you know, experience for his Mm -hmm. time too. Yeah. And for me, like this idea that the 3,260 people in the cemetery never had a funeral or any kind of memorial or remembrance. And in some cases, people slipped away without anyone they knew getting to say a proper goodbye. So that's just sad. And I just hope that this music in some way is a celebration of these people's lives. And this five-part piece, the funeral of, um, this piece is the funeral of Othello, resonates with people. And if you want to learn more about him, you can look up the Chinecki Orchestra is in the UK and attracts people of color and diverse ethnic musicians from, from across Europe and around the world. And in 2022, they put out an album featuring the some works of Samuel Coleridge Taylor, and you can hear the whole Othello piece there. And just one other little bit of spooky coincidence is that Samuel was born in 1875, so just a year before the Duwamish Potter's Field was established, and he died unexpectedly at only age 37 from pneumonia um, in 1912. So he lived when the Potter's Field existed. They were contemporaries. But although there's no evidence that he ever visited Seattle, it's just a very interesting, like, kismet, right, of research. It's just this person that we knew nothing about now. Turns out he lived exactly the same time that this potter's field was in existence. It seems crazy that that, like, sort of serendipity with history. And I love this idea of thinking about, you know, the life of and lifespan of not just people, because we always tend to think of kings and queens and, you know, everyone who is at the top, especially but this idea that, you know, like this kid's book that I got out recently, Celebrate Trees, and it talks about famous trees that had lived for a long time and had this sort of special place in history for a variety of reasons. And I think nature, expanding our understanding to history and thinking about how nature fits into it is really interesting mm-hmm. and key too. So, And just a reminder to everyone that you can always visit our Instagram to see all the riveting visual imagery associated with this episode and more. And while you're surfing the web, which I don't, does anyone even call it that? No, I know, right? No one says that anymore. Where did that even come from? We'll have to investigate that later. Be sure to visit our podcast landing page for show notes, which is www.fogi.org slash 
P-O-T-T-E-R-S-F-I-E-L-D. Whew, did you get all that? www.fogey.org slash pottersfield. We'll be sure to share that link as well so you can easily get it. And if you missed episode one, okay, we forgive you. Just do yourself a favor and go back to listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. And then you can get all the juicy backstory on how two middle-aged white ladies discovered there was a lost (laughs) cemetery in an industrial part of South Seattle. So I know this is something we've been wondering, and you probably have as well. What was it like here in Seattle in the late 1800s? Inquiring minds want to know, right? So in, in a lot of people's minds, we think of this type of inevitable linear hierarchy to history. It was this progression to now, basically, right? And it was inevitable that it was always going to become the Emerald City shining on the hill. But it's important to understand that not only could things have ended up very differently, but it also needs to be viewed from a variety of lenses or perspectives. I mean, here's the anthropologist in me talking now, of course, but uh, that is an important part of my practice as an anthropologist. And for instance, for the indigenous populations here, this was not a remarkable taming of the wilderness leading to this incredibly successful land of opportunity. It was an apocalyptic event of catastrophe and strife and loss or or huge amounts of adaptation at the very least of totally changing their way of life, right? Mm -hmm. And even for people who were here, settlers who were here, the new people, You know, you could see that Seattle was probably this lawless kind of Wild West type frontier town with sawdust on the ground and loose morals in the streets. And, you know, you'd pretty much be right. That's what the early days of Seattle was like. It's an oversimplification, but in many ways it fits the bill for a Wild West town, even through 1899, with dirt streets and not far from a gold rush town with brothels, vigilante justice and gunslingers on every corner And without getting too far into it, because we certainly could cover a whole episode on this theme, the Klondike Gold Rush played an enormous role in Seattle's development and the shape of its destiny. So July 17th, 1897, the steamship Portland docked in Seattle with 68 prospectors and supposedly a ton of gold. And Seattle became the gateway to the gold fields. Um, The population here expanded rapidly. Business was booming. Fortunes were made and fortunes were lost, (laughs) mainly by the people selling to the prospective miners. The fortunes were made. Um, Two key examples who are still here today is the C.C. Filson, who makes outdoor gear, and Alexander Pantages. So check out the Klondike Gold Rush National Park Service Museum in Pioneer Square for all the salacious stories about that. Yes. And, you know, interestingly enough, Alexander Pantages has quite the uh, salacious story himself mm. and, and I was looking up a little bit about it and he boy did he he won and lost more fortunes in a lifetime and ended up in San Quentin for a time and what had a me too moment which was part of that so anyways to do your googling on your own time and you, you can you can write to us about it so one of the things when we're looking at this evolution of the land and nature is a character in history right is We think about the environmental movement, which a lot of people associate with like the hippies in 1960s, 70s and really coming around. And and that's really the time that it did become organized and widespread, right, in many ways. But we wondered, was there an environmental movement in er the early 1900s? 
And I mean, it's sort of a question that we're floating out there, but we have a couple interesting thoughts and ideas about it. One thing that maybe isn't always about the environment, but they did have newspapers like the Seattle Star, which we're talking about and sharing some quotes, some at various points. And we'll share copies of some of these articles, courtesy of the Seattle Public Library, Mm -hmm. in our show notes and stuff like that, too. But they were definitely doing investigative journalism and really trying to move the needle on like social impact and change. And, And sometimes it would be it would um, be linked to these environmental causes. Like the we were talking about the air in Georgetown being really awful mm-hmm. and covering like the housewives. So that type of stuff. The other thing that maybe you might have seen going around, which we found really fascinating, was this newspaper article from 1912 talking about the harm of coal consumption. And just think about that for a moment. 1912. You know, it was, it's over a hundred years ago and it's talking about the dangers of coal consumption and effects on the atmosphere and both Snopes and USA Today verified and fact check it and, and it is authentic. And interestingly enough, it was in a newspaper in Australia and New Zealand, but then also in Popular Mechanics. They had the same quote, so which we were surprised. I think Carrie and I both were like, they had popular mechanics in 1912, but sure, people were tinkering and (laughs) learning how to make things in their basements. So we'll make sure to share these links as well. Um, The March 1912 report in Popular Mechanics, they had this title about um, the remarkable weather of 1911. And I did just want to share, it's a really, really short piece, I promise, because I think it just really hits you, you know, right here. You're just like, wow, coal consumption affecting the climate, which pretty much says it all. The furnaces of the world are now burning about 2 million tons of coal a year, which is probably way, way less than what was happening now, right? When this is burned, uniting with oxygen, it adds about 7 million tons of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere yearly. This tends to make the air a more effective blanket for the earth and to raise its temperature. The effect may be considerable in a few centuries. So just leaving with that last line, I think Mm -hmm. is the one that really hits you because we're like, I mean, we're looking back and we're seeing the EPA, you know, that the effect has been considerable and we now are having to really deal with the fallout of that. So just something for you guys to, to think about there. And, Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, for the environmental movement, one last little piece is this idea that people were probably already doing some of the things that we now romanticize today and think about as as trying to help the earth, like, you know, uh, growing their own food, walking places, maybe because they didn't have a choice. (laughs) But uh, but, you know, if you situate it, think about the different generations and and um, and maybe that's why it was a different framework that people were doing things that were good for the environment in some ways. And, and they also were definitely doing stuff that was leading to a lot of potential harm, maybe out of ignorance and maybe out of wanting, caring more about profits. So yeah. Or just getting out of the dark. I mean, just think it's 4.15 in Seattle on December 18th. <laughs> It's almost dark out. So if you it's lived cold and dark here. if <laughs> Seattle did not have its own electric power till nineteen oh five. So you would have had candles, lanterns, whale oil, who knows what, anything you could find to light your way, because otherwise this time of year in this 
this part of the world, it's dark for most of the day and most of the night. I, I was talking about that <laughs> with my oldest son because, you know, he's eight. And, and I was like, I was like, what do you think people did? You know, and that, I mean, and yeah. maybe you could play games by like, if you had enough candles, I guess, or... but you'd have to make the candles or you'd have to buy them from someone. Yeah, and if you didn't so... have money and you didn't mm-hmm. have anything to make candles, they told stories, they, told they stories. did this, they, they, they laid did. in bed and told stories in the dark <laughs> right, right. and reached out. Are you still there? Yes, okay. Yes. Thank you. Thank God you're still there. Probably, probably not to, uh, yeah. So know. I think part of it just for me realizing that that's what the world was like. Most of the world it lived like that and did not have electric power and didn't have any way to heat themselves or make food or anything. And so just there was this, in a way, kind of desperate need to like be more modern or at least have basic needs being covered. And and I think it ties with this story to the Duwamish River, this river that wound back and forth across the valley, mudflats, seasonally, the river was not navigable because the, either the tide was out or there wasn't enough water or other times of the year, complete flood. There was no solid land. You couldn't build anything because it would be flooded out. And so this sort of taint, quote unquote, taming of the wilderness um, was in some ways needed in Seattle. There wasn't a lot of flat, solid land. And meanwhile, people in Seattle were looking elsewhere to the Panama Canal, for instance, which the United States took over finishing the Panama Canal in 1904. So it would have been on people's minds and this fantastic, you know, engineering wizardry that was happening to build the canal. The canal opened in 1914. And so there must have obviously been boosters here in Seattle saying, we need our own Duwamish Canal. And that that sort of drive to, in Seattle's lifetime that early those years building harbor island you know the river dredging the denny regrade like basically removing entire hills to make the downtown more livable yeah i think you know i did a discussion recently for my oldest son's class and i think um even a lot of adults around here don't understand how much the landscape has been physically reshaped in Seattle, you know, yeah. like you sort of, and, and a lot of people, like you said, you know, it's like, you're just going about your day to day. You're not yeah. necessarily going to think about that. And, and I think it's easy sometimes to, um, to your point about taming the wilderness and needing what needing to have something to help with the darkness and the, and the water and stuff is, yeah. it's easy for us to sit watching our Netflix in 2023 <laughs> in our comfy living rooms and be like, hey, how could they not be conscientious about like, you know, right. the environment or what was happening and stuff. But but once again, that idea of situating yourself in the historical context and what it was like and understanding that it's never a simple black and white story. There's mm-hmm. always all these complexities to it. And, and you know, um, and it's important, I think, to try to situate yourselves in the framework of the time. So, yeah. yeah. So there were definitely a lot of changes, a lot of technologies, like building tunnels and re, you know, stabilizing the Seattle waterfront. So just from an engineering perspective, imagine basically Seattle getting a, almost a complete makeover at that time, <laughs> early 1900s. And one of the people, interestingly enough, that was really responsible for that was Seattle engineer R.H. Thompson, who born in 1856, died in 1949, and is really credited with he first came to Seattle, I think at the end of the 1800s, and basically looked around. And I think 
probably turned his nose up a little bit saying, oh my God, there's no sidewalks, there's no paved streets, there's no water, there's no electricity. Like you all are living like it's the, anyway, back in time. So he came here um, and basically came from the East Coast to help Seattle evolve and move into something that we recognizable to what we see today. And so from History Link, I just thought this was a really interesting quote. So Reginald Huber Thompson probably did more than any other individual to change the face of Seattle. During his exemplary career as a city engineer and beyond, he leveled hills, straightened and dredged waterways, reclaimed tide flats, built sewers, sidewalks, tunnels, bridges, and paved roads. He was instrumental in creating the Cedar River Watershed, Seattle City Light, which is our electric utility, Mm -hmm. the Port of Seattle, and the Hiram Chittenden Locks. Oh, which is a really interesting feature, too, in Ballard, if you haven't been over there. And that connects Lake Washington to Puget Sound. And before that, there wasn't a way to to connect. So, you know, you can look at it all now and say, oh, well, all those things created an environmental catastrophe, displacement of indigenous people, displacement of immigrants, like all this kind of horrible aftermath. But on the other hand, like he saw the need and basically figured out how to do this to the land. So it's, it's to me, it's the good and the bad, right? You see Mm -hmm. both. And just that he, this one person really had such a huge impact on Seattle. So. Yeah. And essentially created like the foundation of the infrastructure that allowed it to build into what it is today. And so you're exactly right. That's the thing, the complexities, you know, like there's going to be good and bad consequences for almost every decision that involves major changes, you know, and especially when you're talking about environments and large amounts of people and stuff like that. So, yeah. So, and just back to the Potter's Field or the Duwamish Cemetery, which that's what this podcast is about. (laughs) But just when that was settled, so when they first created this cemetery in 1876, um, this the cemetery was really in this out of the way place. And it was part of King County at that time. It was a place to hold the dead from the early days of Washington territory up through statehood in 1887 and into the modern age. Um, And as Seattle grew, basically the cemetery suddenly became neighbors with all these people and where people were working and people were living. So it's just, that's to put all this in context. Um, and just the growth of Georgetown around that area. For instance, the, in 1906, the Georgetown steam plant was built by a private company to power the Seattle streetcars. And they used oil to boil water to generate steam-powered electricity until the 19-teens when they switched oh to coal. So back to the whole climate change. Like, yeah. can you imagine living in Georgetown at that time? Just the smoke and the noise and the mud and, you know, just... I can't, I mean, I complain about the air because I got <laughs> today. I'm like, I have asthma, like, and, you know, and it's like, I'm like, oh, if the air is at all bad. So I can't even imagine because you think about, you know, like industrialized London or something. And yeah. I, I'm sure this was like equally oh, bad yeah. at times, but it was like, it was their reality, you know, and it's not like you're going to be able to single handedly go out and change that. You sort of just have to have to deal with it. And, and like, in, important point, which also, spans to today is that a lot of people were just trying to live and raise their families and you know and the things that so so yeah that now they have us to be able to think about the big picture right (laughs) (laughs) and all of you guys yes so 
As Seattle grew to become a city of over 237,000 people by 1910, so rapid growth, the cemetery suddenly became surrounded by people living and working and industries needed land and people wanted access to a deep navigable river. And this is this idea around contested space because we're Mm -hmm. talking about, you know, colonization. First of all, people are coming in and being like, hey, we want this space. And and there's people already there who Mm -hmm. have the space. And so it it becomes contested space between them. And, And then as more and more people came in, people wanted it for different reasons or wanted to use it in different ways. And so how do you decide and who gets to decide? And it's not always fair or right or equitable, I should say. But um, but a decision is made usually. And then we mm-hmm. move along with that and see what happens, you know, and there are usually always consequences. So all of this development and land forming is happening in this time from 1905 to 1912. So like smack dab in this key time period for the Duwamish Poor Farm Cemetery for mm-hmm. our Potter's Field. And plus, this, there's this new idea, aha, of the Duwamish Canal in reclaiming, I'm putting this in air quotes, reclaiming useless land for industries. And it starts in 1912. So, you know, like the people like um, Thompson yeah. who were thinking, hey, that land is just sitting there. No one can really use it. You know, he's not thinking about balanced ecosystems and and indigenous um, sacred spaces or anything. He's just thinking, man, that... That land is not being used, and we know what we can do to try to use it. So he's really thinking from his perspective. Yeah. Yeah, and just thinking about anyone who's living, if you had been born in Georgetown in 1900, and just as a child growing up and just seeing these changes happen so quickly, just their entire world must have felt upended. Like construction projects were everywhere, dust, smoke from every direction, Newfangled automobiles speeding down the street, farmland being replaced with factories and a river becoming a shipping channel. It must have just been completely disorienting. Like if you'd gone away and come back and then just you couldn't even recognize. They always say you can never go home again. But, you know, I think about (laughs) I think about my grandmother on my dad's side because she lived in in Compton, California in like the 1920s, mm-hmm. I want to say, and just thinking about how much that's changed in our lifetime and, and yeah. all the, um, because of the time period she lived, cause she passed away years ago now, but, um, the amount of things that happened as far as, uh, technology and advances and, and the way technology is exponentially changing now. I mean, I don't what my boys are going to see in the lifetime. I don't I know. know. Like they're already, <laughs> So yeah. far ahead, but that stuff. Oh, we could definitely get off into a big side discussion on that, the advances of technology. But it is interesting, and it does play into these ideas that we're looking at. I mean, all these threads are connected. So, okay, getting back on track here with our evolution of the land, let's go back in time. Time travel way back before the settlers <laughs> arrived in 1851, before 1792, when Britain and then other European sailing ships were first exploring into the Salish Sea. So there were all kinds of changes in the land. Starting just a thousand years ago, we can visualize and imagine that Seattle looked more like the Nisqually Delta, which is between Tacoma and Olympia. And Carrie, for those of us who who may not, what is a delta for maybe people in the audience? Can you explain that oh, one? Or should yeah, I? so a delta is where a river it comes into a sea or a lake. And so it makes this kind of fan-shaped um, shape where the, the kind of different channels of the river spread out and all the silt 
and rocks and sand and things are being deposited and built up over time, creating in some cases solid land and in some cases just wetland, mudflat. The marshy wetlands. Yeah. Yeah. Which a lot of Seattle, we were talking about a lot of that sort of space that we know of as the city and downtown of Seattle today was like marshy. stadiums are is complete fill on top of garbage and dead horses and old sailing ships and trash. It's not (laughs) solid at all. It's, it's, yeah, it's a liquefaction all... zone. So, it... oh boy, yeah, we can think about that the next time we go to a game, right? Or yeah. <laughs> not that we go to games. But <laughs> our newly PhD, our new doctorate person who is helping out with us. So the points Elizabeth was making was really about this idea that the land under our feet is not so solid, and it has changed and evolved quite a bit over time, and. And she likes to talk a lot about earthquake preparedness, too. And what Carrie was just talking about, in case you're not that familiar with the term, but liquefaction, one of the things she's studying is literally ground becoming liquid, like not solid in the case of an event such as an earthquake. And we are here in Seattle. For those of you outside of town, you may not know, but we are in a big fault zone area. We ha- we don't have earthquakes frequently. I'm going to pretend to knock on wood right there because, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, but, um, but when they do happen, oh boy. So we definitely have had, so that is something, you know, that we study here and we want to make sure people are prepared. And it's one of the things Elizabeth is studying and we can share some of her really interesting links and resources mm-hmm. that has way more detail and knowledge and information if you're interested to find out more about those types of topics basically so and we do have you know volcanoes in the area it's just that they haven't erupted in quite some time so but could go at any moment any moment yeah knock on wood again (laughs) (laughs) so so prior to european and euro-american settlement and land claims in seattle in 1851 there were these 5,300 acres of tidal mudflats and wetlands. And this is what we call now the Duwamish Valley. And the Duwamish were the first, uh, they were one of the Coast Salish tribes that lived directly in this area. But they were the people of the inside, basically. I know that sounds crazy because we're on water here, right? But we're not on the coast. So they were named the people of the inside because of their location, essentially, and they are one of the Puget Sound Coast, Coast Salish tribes or groups of people that have been here since the end of the last ice age, 14,000 years ago. Think about that for a little bit. And by the 19th century, they were living in hundreds of longhouses that were built from the mouth of the Duwamish River up through today's Renton and Auburn. And, you know, we try to think of and categorize a lot of stuff in, in Western science and obviously and so a lot of tribal names and affiliations and have changed over the years. I just want to make clear that there's a lot of, there's certain tribes you can look up that are categorized as the Coast Salish people, but a lot of that has been changing and evolving. And I think it's important to be sensitive to what the people themselves want to be called to and how they self-identify. So in episode three, we will share some indigenous death practices from this region of Puget Sound. And a big thank you to Johnny Moses and Pamela Bond, Sea Monster, for sharing their knowledge with us. And that will be part of episode three. So come back. 
the Duwamish Cemetery was established in 1876. And at that time, the location was a windy point of land on the west side of the King County Poor Farm and Hospital. I, I feel like I need sound effects. <laughs> the tide would come in every day and go back out. And by the early 1900s, however, it seemed that some people in Georgetown actually wanted the cemetery gone. From a Seattle Post-Intelligencer article from June 8th, 1904, Wants cemetery moved. Georgetown tired of having gravestones in its midst. And I think we think sometimes, right, it's this more modern, like, not in my backyard. Right, attitude, exactly. right? But no, it was happening. <laughs> well, and I just, that's why, that's what makes me think. This was not probably a well-tended, nice-looking cemetery like you'd find here, like Lakeview or yeah. Green with Shelley, where you drive by and you say, oh, look at all the graves, and it looks so nice. <laughs> yes. This probably looked like farm paddock maybe with a wooden fence if that and no sign I mean it probably just looked really kind of sad so yeah I can sort of understand that so the the residents of Georgetown had filed a petition with the board of county commissioners yesterday meaning June 7th 1904 asking that the old potter's field just outside the town be moved elsewhere the cemetery was the one first used by the town the bodies of the unknown dead, however, still lie in the old graveyard, which with the growth of the town is unpleasantly close. <laughs> the Supreme Court of the state of Washington has decided that even the dead have rights and cannot be moved at will if any living person raises objection in their behalf. If a protest should be made, the removal may become an impossibility. That's so fascinating because it's interesting to think about the rights of you know, how do you define personhood, right? Mm -hmm. That's been a big topic in our era and yeah. thinking about the dead having rights. And and I wonder if anyone, if there was a protest though, because clearly it, eventually it was over. Well, in less than, this right. was 1904. So mm -hmm. in eight years, the rights of the dead were gone. Like yeah, they, they were, were like- Basically forget. superseded by the need to reshape the Duwamish River. So I just, yeah, I found that very interesting and just, it makes me- want so desperately to find a picture of what the cemetery looked like at that time I know. or any time yeah just to kind of verify what's in my imagination right now of what it no like. it's true and we are we're going to be going on a archive hunt here Ooh. in the new year hopefully or, <laughs> or at least uh museum of history and industry mm -hmm. has some potential pieces to look at right yeah. and i mean washington historical society yes. their Ashel curtis collection they're digitizing his entire photographic collection mm -hmm. so again we've just put it out there on our vision board that he did take a picture of the cemetery but it was such a taboo subject that no one wanted the picture for the newspaper or for anything yeah. else and it just sort of went in a box and hopefully we can find a copy of it and it, it's yeah. actually, it's staggering how many pieces haven't been digitized, understandably, because it's a oh, huge yeah. undertaking too. But, you know, what you actually see or what you can search, especially online, yeah. is such a small percentage of what's out there. So, you know, we yeah. do need to get into our, like, going to the spaces and mm -hmm. digging. So excited about that. And hopefully, you know, it'll come to pass. Yeah. And speaking of, you know, we had mentioned the Seattle Star and their investigative journalism and this idea of activism and resistance from that time period, which 
just going to be honest that with myself, I had thought, oh, no, I'm sure there wasn't this type of like pushback back then or, you know, this type of stuff going on. Everyone just sort of did what they were doing. And and I, I just wasn't really looking at it from this more complex lens. And because, of course, yeah, there were people definitely trying to make social justice back then and and it just might not have looked exactly the same and seattle star was definitely writing pieces to get eyeballs on papers but mm-hmm. they also were exposing a lot of stuff that was happening and amazingly enough which we'll talk more about later it it did have an impact and a lot of pieces here at least helped move the needle on some things that needed to be changed all this to say not everyone was on board with the changes from the powers that be for industrialization This is an article, I'm just going to read a little bit because it's just so fabulous. We've used it in a bunch of our haunted history, like theatrical (laughs) pieces, and and you'll you'll see why. I mean, it definitely is tugging at the heartstrings. So the author is Fred Bolt, who I'm not, I don't know if we've ever looked to see if he's actually writing this type of stuff all the time or what he exactly was like, but yeah, it's a really interesting piece. It was wasted land. As a potter's field, it does nobody any good viewed from the strictly utilitarian point of view those four acres of king county land are worth money and he goes on about how it's all very well to be sentimental he's got pieces too in there from gray's eulogy mm-hmm. which i wasn't super familiar with i'm not totally sure where it's from and one of the interesting points is when he talks about the type of people that end up there mm-hmm. They stole rides on trains and during the discomforts of the bumpers, the torments of the brake beam and brake men heaved chunks of coal at them and kicked them off the trains as was their duty and routed them out of side door palace cars. Rural constables herded them in village lockups or shipped them on to the next county, counting the act good riddance of bad rubbish. In the towns, the same old cold welcome waited. Society had made their poverty a crime. So I think that's, Mm. it's really telling. In 20 years, so they actually do get some numbers going Mm -hmm. here. 3,000 paupers have died in King County and have been buried in the potter's field. We we know that was 3,260 total in the end. A tract of now valuable land owned by the county at Georgetown. All their lives had been charges on respectable communities. And now that they were dead, they were charges still. They must be buried, got out of the way. The woman found floating in the bay, the mangled corpse of Johnny Yegg picked up beside the railroad track, which must be a slang term for mm-hmm. like some, I mean, I don't know. It's probably, probably horrible. Yeah. I mean, I, I, we'd have to look up that, but the hideous shell of the stew bum who fell asleep at Billy the Mugs, which actually was, and which was a, a tavern mm-hmm. in Georgetown, right? So yeah. that's a reference or to Or in Pioneer Square, I think. In it Pioneer was in Square, okay. yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, reference to an actual place and would not waken the clay of the child born in shame, these must be taken quickly away. No prayers were said, no mourners followed them to the grave. They went quietly, stealthily to the potter's field in the night. The diggers dug, growling because the dirt was hard, the hours of toil long. In the end, he brings it around to, well, it's high time something was done. There was scarcely room left for another grave. Graves, crowded graves like hobos in a 10-cent flop house, which is another. Oh my God. <laughs> no one could tell one grave from another no one cared yes high time they failed and died the world is for the living he says like the potter's field will make excellent factory sites urns cost little and ashes take up but little room so what does it matter if the sleep of the failures is disturbed anyhow it'll all be the same a hundred years hence 
prince or pauper, it will all be the same, which is wow. an interesting way to end. So, yeah. so very poetic. He definitely was, um, like you said, going for the uh, emotional connection. But we were musing that, you know, it's interesting that he, he there's no call to action. Like he's no. not, he's yeah. making it known to people. But I don't know whether he thought people knew what to, oh, they got affected by it. And they're like, I'm going to go do something about it. Or, yeah. or he just wanted to bring it to their attention. But yeah, like today, everything's so centered around right. giving people something yeah. to go and do. So, yeah. And I think if anyone had found that any of their relatives had been buried there, they were probably moved to a exhumed and moved and interred somewhere else. So I think what was left there by 1912 were really just all the people that had no one to care for them and or able to do anything for them in their death and beyond. So we'll get yeah. more into that in episode three, diving deep into who was buried there. Oh, yes, that's going to be exciting. And a lot of their stories, which is one of the big goals that we had with the project was to not only make visible this evolution in the land, but really these stories that were pushed to the margins and effectively erased. Like, who were they? How did they end up there? So mm -hmm. This next part will work great if you're looking at our Instagram or our YouTube page, because you'll be able to see some of the images that we've put together, some of the maps. But just to share again, sort of the quick evolution of this land. So the 1907 map from King County Roads clearly shows the original location of the Potter's Field along the river near the poor farm buildings. Charleston Avenue becomes today's Corson Avenue, connecting East Marginal Way north to South Michigan and South Bailey Street and today's I-5 on-ramp. <laughs> and by 1912 on that map, the Potter's Field is no longer shown on the map. In fact, it says industrial tracts. Mm -hmm. All the poor farm buildings are still shown, including orchards, fences, greenhouses, and outbuildings. So the, the poor farm was still in operation. They had just sort of lost the western half of their land. Um, there is an unusual dark cross-shaped building you can see on the 1912 map, and that is the King County Crematorium, which was specially built to cremate all 3,260 human remains, or what was left in the potter's field. So that was all done at the end of 1912. So dredging of the Duwamish River began here by the Army Corps in 1913. And per some research from the Army Corps archives, the old location of the potter's field was where they began to stage equipment, since that was now vacant. I'm just getting over something, as you can tell, with the husky voice. So... Moving along the timeline and Carrie, our queen of maps. Yeah. <laughs> I love it because 1921 map of Georgetown from the King County Road Services. And you can look at how everything has changed, right? The now straightened Duwamish River is flowing north on the upper left corner of the map crop and running parallel to East Marginal Way, which I think is... I mean, I don't know. We always, that name, right? mm -hmm. it's marginal. I yeah. I, I guess you think about the margins, right? Yeah. Literally. Margins. But still, but it they could like... have named it R.H. Thompson <laughs> Parkway, right? They could have named it anything, but they chose marginal. Yeah. East marginal and West marginal. So it's like, <laughs> this is where nobody's supposed to go. Right, right. Exactly. So the Lost Potter's Field is below the industries and rail lines shown in the bottom left corner. Note that the crematorium is still on the poor farm property, that distinctive black cross-shaped building. And the Brick King County Hospital is on the corner of Corson and South Michigan in the bottom right corner. 
And on the corner of East Marginal and South Corson, you can see the future gas station site of the Hat and Boots Premium Tex Gas Station. For those of you who are not familiar with the Seattle area or haven't ventured into South Seattle as much, the Hat and Boots is literally giant hat and a giant like Texas cowboy type hat and Texas cowboy type boots that were part of this um, cool, you know, gas station back at what time period was that? Exactly like the From 50s, the 60s, 60s yeah, of 50s course 60s. it was the 60s, yeah. right? And they have moved them and created a park now, actually. So they actually sit in this park that has grass and a playground and all mm-hmm. that type of stuff. So it's a pretty cool way to, yeah. to reuse that. And that was one of the first kind of tangible projects that Friends of Georgetown History worked on back in the early oh, 2000s was yay. to save the hat and boots um, oh, wow. and, and move them there. So it was an entire like Department of Neighborhoods grant, oh getting permission, gosh. like the construction, working you know with the city to basically preserve them so they weren't just, because they Whatever were falling into disrepair to, and yeah. you know, probably would have been vandalized beyond anything oh, so probably so. so in the future friends of georgetown history will probably be working on a capital campaign to do some needed upkeep of the hat and boots so stay tuned for that that will be a very ambitious project <laughs> yes and and speaking of ambitious projects we do hope to make this stretch of south corson street that we're talking about into an immersive walking tour and an experience for people to connect with the invisible histories Mm -hmm. of what the neighborhood looked like in the past. So we are working hard on the script for that right now. And so those of you in Seattle next year at some point, we're not going to put a definite time on it yet, we'll be able to experience that and have this stuff come to life in new and interesting ways, which we'll talk more about as we move along. And that's the thing with research and this archival exploration is once you know more then you know more and you can actually ask the right questions keep building yeah Yeah. exactly knowing the question to ask is one of Mm -hmm. the most important parts right yeah let's go back briefly 111 years ago specifically the last three months of that year picture it seattle november 1912 cold clammy (laughs) overcast the smoky air from local industries blocking out the meager sun So the county, King County, had entered a contract with Mr. Noyce, the local undertaker of the Georgetown Funeral Home, who was also a leader in the Oddfellows Comet Lodge right there in Georgetown. In November, the county hired a crematorium caretaker and assistant directly responsible to the county commissioners, who have also issued rules for the crematorium operations. I'd love to see those rules because they probably were (laughs) not very explicit. Right. The new crematorium in Georgetown could also accept fee-based private cremations as well as the 3,260 who need to be quickly removed and cremated by the end of 1912. So Mr. Noyce is tasked with disinterment, cremation, and columbarium storage of bodies from the Duwamish Cemetery. Mm -hmm. So he begins this grim task to exhume and deliver 85 bodies per day to the crematory. He was paid $2.50 per body in 1912, removed from the field using skulls to keep count. Oh my gosh. And just a little note, sidebar and future episode, in the same time frame, he and Dr. Corson from King County Hospital also managed the sale of burial plots for the Odd Fellows at the Comet Lodge Cemetery, of which they were both members. 
So that story didn't turn out so well either for those who've researched or visited the Comet Lodge Cemetery on South Graham Street. So we will definitely do an episode about that. So imagine the grim task ahead to cremate these bodies in just 39 days, many of which are decomposed beyond recognition. The bodily remains were each to be stored in individual cans. However, according to some accounts, they purchased metal cans that were too small. Imagine baked bean cans versus a small soup can. Oh my gosh. And what happened next was deemed beyond understanding by the state auditor in December of 1912. So in a March 25th, 1913 Post-Intelligencer article, Say County Let Loose Contract, the reporter wrote that careless and unbusinesslike methods were used, including, and this is just unbelievable, the ashes of as many as 163 bodies were raked onto the floor of the county crematorium and distributed into individual receptacles purporting to bear the name of each deceased. And Mr. Noyce <laughs> claimed he was only hired to deliver every headboard to the crematory. And if these were destroyed, it was done after they left my possession. Oh my God. <laughs> it's just so, I just can't imagine, you know, if you were, if you were one of the relatives, you know, oh my God. although obviously a lot of, these were the people that, you know, no relatives yeah. had come forward, but they, they but were. But what if you were the word? That was I your know. job. You were coming to work every day and oh, it was God. just this incredible mess. And, and you're like, are you sure we're supposed to be doing it this way? Like, Is anyone fine. keeping yeah. records? I know, right? I mean, they did oh. record everybody in a, in a written, they, handwritten they register. Yeah. So maybe that was a fiction itself. Of, But I don't know. Yeah, it just it seems really like they, the intentions were much higher than the implementation the way it was executed which i mean we definitely see evidence of a lot of stuff like that in the yeah. government over the years uh, right? yeah. I mean, so. <laughs> okay. so the state examiners in their march 1913 scathing report recommend that the 3260 receptacles containing mixed ashes of many bodies be discarded that the ashes be placed in one receptacle and that the fiction of a name on a can be removed from the columbarium shelves so this is likely where the neighborhood lore around disposal of ashes into the Duwamish River originated. And as of this writing, there is no evidence to explain what happened to the cremated remains of the 3,260 people in 1912. Yeah. In an email from 2010 from King County Archive staff Rebecca Pixler to archaeologist Eric Anderson, quote unquote, on January 29, 1920, the King County Commissioners passed Resolution Number 567, Whereas the quarters at the county crematory provided for storage of ashes is filled to capacity, and whereas it is impossible at the time to provide additional storage space, now therefore it be resolved that all ashes, either known or unknown, which have been stored in urns for six years or more, be and the same, are hereby taken from the vault and interred. But neither the resolution itself or the inventory of other records relating to the crematorium states where these ashes were then interred. And so the mystery of the ashes goes beyond the original 3,260 and includes people cremated 1913 to 1920 whose cremains were left at the crematorium storage columbarium and were perhaps not interred anywhere else oh either. Gosh. And there's later evidence starting in 1925 that the ashes of known people were given to families and recorded in a disposition of ashes document but there is no evidence of what happened to known people who couldn't afford to be buried anywhere else or unidentified remains. 
Interesting. So, and the crematorium itself was dismantled in 1941 by the National Youth Administration as a training project with equipment and materials salvaged and stored by King County. Can you imagine what might still be in storage somewhere? Seriously. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. And this is one of the big like mysteries that has really been driving us is like looking for a picture of what the space looked like, like Mm -hmm. you said, and this idea of what happened to these poor people's ashes that were all like mixed together at some points and put back into another container and, and this whole sort of neighborhood lore idea that mm-hmm. they were dumped in the river because they were dumping a lot of stuff in the river. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we were talking about the regrading and they're like putting dirt in the river. Yeah. They're putting pollutants in the river eventually. Yeah. You know, everything just the put in the river. went right in the river. Yeah. But I just think because the poor farm was there with plowed fields and maybe those cows from yeah. that Ashel Curtis picture. That's right. So in a way, I mean, maybe it's good or bad, but that the ashes maybe were scattered in the fields just and plowed into I the think that's certainly potato possible, fields. Right? And so <laughs> I don't know. I mean, what would have been if like, what is the least amount of effort that someone would have to have done to like, quote unquote, clean up the columbarium? Yeah. And like you said, I think they probably wanted, maybe they wanted their intentions were that they would be interred somewhere else. But if no one came through with the place, it's like, yeah. okay. And the county, King County itself may not have had any other cemeteries that they were in charge of. And mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. couldn't just make like Lakeview Cemetery take on oh, yeah. these ashes. So, I mean, until now, I believe Mount Olivet is the cemetery that the county uses for this purpose. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But yeah, I don't know if there actually was another place another so. option right short of someone just going to their backyard and yeah <laughs> which could have happened I mean, we, just, we don't know yeah i just it's also i just the kind of dark humor of yeah it makes me laugh thinking about this like beautiful olmstead manicured landscape around the crematorium building and just being covered in ashes like right, right. just oh, that, gosh, that so <laughs> was that the vision of the olmstead brothers when they designed the <laughs> plant layout seriously oh my gosh gosh. all this wild and unsettling timeline elka please tell us that the king county changed its ways and that there was a better way to care for our our lost and unidentified remains so after the duwamish cemetery was closed i guess we could call it that right Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the beyond understanding of the king county crematory there were some changes in the coroner's office after 1913. So, aha, silver lining. Record keeping and the indigent burial program, which became the indigent remains program eventually. So the King County Coroner's Office actually became the King County Medical Examiner in 1969. And the Medical Examiner's Office has been continually accredited with the National Association of Medical Examiners since 1978. And they started this, the King County Indigent Remains Program, which is still going today. And it provides cremation and a proper burial for individuals who are indigent and who have died in King County. This program, it serves people whose families either could not be located or could not provide for the proper disposition of remains. So, and they, you're right, Mount Olivet, they do have the ceremony every two years at Mount Olivet in Renton. And I actually went... Two years ago, I didn't go to the one this year. They just had one in October this mm-hmm. year, but it really is a beautiful ceremony, and they have different like religious speakers and leaders, and 
music of different types. And so, so they really put together something that's incredibly moving and they don't always have, you know, they don't have a lot of family members and stuff attending, obviously, mm-hmm. but they do have people from like the county attending and they do have people from organizations like Share Wheel, which we'll be talking more about in a future episode. And this is a group that one of the things they do is help with remembrance for specifically homeless people who've died on the margins. And I talked to two of the ladies who were there that day briefly and and it was just I think it's just such a cool program and it really makes this connection to that, this idea that, you know, we're talking about all this crazy stuff that happened in history, right? And a lot of it, you're like, how could this possibly have happened? Oh my God, it's horrible. But there are people out there passing away with no family, no friends around, Mm -hmm. no means of of having remembrance and burial today. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's important to connect it back to that as well, which we will do more of in a future episode and yeah. um yeah. yeah the other thing that king county medical examiner's office does that i appreciate is seeking the public's assistance in identifying cold cases of unidentified remains so part of the group of people buried at the potter's field were people who just dropped dead with no id and no one came to get them so it was basically unidentified man unidentified woman which was pretty common back in the day yeah right? exactly I mean, we, if you looked at we actually got a document at one point that had people's personal possessions it was oh, one of the yeah. like undertaking yep. documents and it said what people had on them and some of the stuff it's so interesting how things change because i'm not even sure about some of the stuff they're talking about because they're using terms that are different you know yeah. like it's it's not always the same you know comb or right. i mean i know what a comb yeah. is but yeah, but just recently there was some news that they had used familial DNA to identify a young man whose body had washed up at Discovery Park in nine, in 2017. Oh, wow. So, um, and so he was cremated at the time and his remains are at Mount Olivet. So now his family can retrieve his ashes if they wish and at least now know where he died. And even if, you know, the, even if the circumstances of his death are unknown, which oh, they still are in this specific case. Which is super important. And, and did I mention that already about the fact that one of the big changes they made is they obviously don't put them all together. They have right. separate containers and they are always looking out for the fact that people may come and claim mm-hmm. them and be able to rebury yeah. them where they choose or do with them as they please. Um, yeah. And I think even now, even in this connected world where, you know, you could use your smartphone to find somebody on the, through the internet, if people come to town alone and something happens and that, no one knows where they are. They could be here. They could be anywhere. I just think it's, it is hard from a, you know, even a cold case perspective to like identify who, who someone is. If, if no one has said anything and, um, you know, and they're dead, they can't say anything. So yeah. anyway, I'm just, I appreciate that this program is here and that funds can be raised to help actually identify somebody. So yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I echo that sentiment that it's so great that this is what happens now and it's so different from what happened back in the era of Potter's Field and for a whole range of reasons from technology to various changes. And if you died without identification back then and no one came to claim your body or they just chose to not claim it because we have some stories about that, which we'll talk about (laughs) in the next episode, you were going to the Potter's Field within a few days and... And as we found out, and I think this is just another thing that resonates so much with me, even that wasn't a permanent resting place, yeah. as we found out. We think of 
graveyards and cemeteries as the one sort of solid permanent resting place, but they're definitely not. There's the landscape is ever evolving and shifting, and there's always a chance, even without industrialization, that things will change. So, hey, did you want to tell everybody about the next yeah. episode? So here? join us for the next episode, episode three, where we dig into the lives and deaths of some of the people buried at the potter's field. So all the, we don't have stories of all 3,260. There were only 855 who yeah. actually had names. And from that group, our fabulous researchers, Rose and Patty, have mm-hmm. in our, our own, you know, we found names maybe of 50 people. Um, and from that group, we have found some really interesting stories, which we will share with you next time. And yes, but don't want to miss it. But these people were never celebrated or memorialized, and they weren't even buried with their family, and their names were soon forgotten. So we hope to share the stories, including Ingo Singh, one of the first people of the Sikh faith in the Seattle area, who died in 1907. Mary Lake and her husband and lover, who died in the Melrose Place of Seattle, the Fredonia House, in 1906. (laughs) That's what I like to call it. And other notable burials in the Potter's Field, um... Three men who were lynched by a mob of angry citizens in January of 1883 at today's Occidental Park. And we find out about some very interesting souvenirs of that incident. And Thomas Hamilton Blank, the Jesse James of the Pacific Northwest, who was buried at the Potter's Field in 1895. Yes, and please subscribe and keep listening wherever you get your podcasts. We're always looking for invisible histories of the Pacific Northwest. So if you have a good story idea, please reach out at invisiblehistories at gmail.com. Some upcoming episodes could include the Comet Lodge Cemetery, the Duwamish Bend Housing Project, and the history of Seattle, King County's sewer system, if you want to talk about really underground invisible history. So <laughs> what happens when you flush? I know. <laughs> <laughs> over the years, over the centuries. Yes. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for joining us as we unearth more invisible history. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Invisible Histories, Pacific Northwest with Elka Hadala and Carrie Simpson, exploring the lost stories of the Pacific Northwest. Recorded at Works Progress Cooperative in Seattle, Washington in 2023, Seattle's only cooperatively run co-working space. And you can find out more at worksprogress.coop. Audio edited by me, Elka Hadala, and funding provided from a 2023 Four Culture Heritage Project grant. And support from Friends of Georgetown History Productions, If you want to find out what they're all about, visit FOGHI.org. And you can link to our Invisible Histories webpage through the FOGHI.org site to see pictures, maps, show notes, and all the juicy details. We know where the bodies are buried. Subscribe to our podcast where you get your podcasts and reach out to us at invisiblehistories.org pnw at gmail.com.